Part 3, Chapter 5, Section 143 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss. Translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3, History of the Passion, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus. Chapter 5, The Ascension. Section 143, Insufficiency of the Narratives of the Ascension. Mythical Conception of Those Narratives. Among all the New Testament histories of miracles, the ascension least demanded such an expenditure of perverted acumen, since the attestations to its historical validity are peculiarly weak. Not only to us, who, having no risen Jesus, can consequently have no ascended one, but apart from all prior conclusions and in every point of view. Matthew and John who according to the common idea were the two eyewitnesses among the evangelists, do not mention it. It is narrated by Mark and Luke alone, while in the rest of the New Testament writings decided allusions to it are wanting. But this absence of allusions to the ascension in the rest of the New Testament is denied by orthodox expositors. When, say they, Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, declares before the high priest that hereafter the Son of Man will be seen sitting at the right hand of God, this presupposes an exaltation thither, consequently an ascension. When in John, chapter 3, verse 13, he says, No one hath ascended into heaven but the Son of Man who came from heaven, and at another time, chapter 6, verse 62, tells the disciples that they will hereafter see him ascend where he was before. Further, when on the morning of the resurrection he declares that he is not yet ascended to his father, implying that he is about to do so, chapter 20, verse 17, there could hardly be more explicit allusions to the ascension. Again, when the apostles in the Acts so often speak of an exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God, chapter 2, verse 33, chapter 5, verse 31, compare chapter 7, verse 56, and Paul represents him as ascended up far above all heavens, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, Peter as gone into heaven, First Peter chapter 3 verse 22, there can be no doubt that they all knew of his ascension. All these passages, however, with the exception perhaps of John chapter 6 verse 62, where a seeing of the Son of Man ascend is spoken of, contain only in general his exaltation to heaven, without intimating that it was an external visible act that took place in the presence of the disciples. Rather, when we find Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 5 and following, ranking the appearance of Jesus to himself, which occurred long after the alleged ascension, with the Christophanies before this epoch, so entirely without any pause or indication of a distinction, we must doubt not merely that all the appearances which he enumerates besides his own 
can have occurred before the ascension but whether the apostle can have had any knowledge at all of an ascension as an external fact which closed the earthly life of jesus as to the author of the fourth gospel in his metaphorical language we are not compelled by the word theoriti any more than by the opsiesthi in relation to the angels ascending and descending upon jesus chapter one verse fifty two to ascribe to him a knowledge of the visible ascension of jesus of which he gives no intimation at the conclusion of his gospel commentators have it is true taken all possible pains to explain the want of a narrative of the ascension in the first and fourth gospels in a way which may not prove inimical either to the authority of the writings or to the historical value of the fact they maintain that the evangelists who are silent on the subject held it either unnecessary or impossible to narrate the ascension they held it unnecessary say these expositors either intrinsically from the minor importance of the event or extrinsically on the consideration that it was generally known as a part of the evangelical tradition john in particular supposed it to be known from mark and luke or lastly both matthew and john omitted it as not belonging to the earthly life of jesus to the description of which their writings were exclusively devoted but we must contend on the contrary that the life of jesus especially that enigmatical life which he led after his return from the grave absolutely required such a close as the ascension whether it were generally known or not whether it were important or unimportant the simple aesthetic interest which dictates even to an uncultivated author that a narrative should be wound up with a conclusion must have led every evangelical writer who knew of the ascension to mention it though it were but summarily at the end of his history in order to avoid the strange impression left by the first gospel and still more by the fourth as narratives losing themselves in vague obscurity hence our apologists resort to the supposition that the first and fourth evangelists held it impossible to give an account of the ascension of jesus because the eyewitnesses however long they might gaze after him could still only see him hovering in the air and encircled by the cloud not entering heaven and taking his place on the right hand of god but in the ideas of the ancient world to which heaven was nearer than to us an entrance into the clouds was in itself a real ascent into heaven as we see from the stories of romulus and elijah thus it is undeniable that the above evangelists were ignorant of the ascension but the conclusion of the most recent criticism that this ignorance is a reproach to the first evangelist as a sign of his unapostolic character is the less in place here because the event in question is rendered suspicious not merely by the silence of two evangelists but also by the want of agreement between those who narrate it 
Mark is at variance with Luke. Nay, Luke is at variance with himself. In the account of the former, it appears as if Jesus had ascended into heaven immediately from the meal in which he appeared to the eleven, consequently from out of a house in Jerusalem. For the phrases, He appeared with the eleven as they sat at meat, and upbraided them, etc., and he said, etc. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, etc. Have an immediate dependence on each other, and it is only by violence that a change of place or a distinction of time can be introduced. Now an ascent into heaven directly out of a room is certainly not easy to imagine. Hence, Luke represented it as taking place in the open air. In his gospel, he makes Jesus, immediately before his ascension, lead out his disciples as far as Bethany. But in the Acts, he places the scene on the mount called Olivet. This, however, cannot be imputed to him as a contradiction, since Bethany lay in the neighborhood of the Mount of Olives but there is a more important divergency in his statement of time for in this gospel as in mark we are left to infer that the ascension took place on the same day with the resurrection whereas in the acts it is expressly remarked that the two events were separated by an interval of forty days it has already been remarked that the latter determination of time must have come to the knowledge of Luke in the interim between the composition of the Gospel and that of the Acts. The more numerous the narratives of appearances of the risen Jesus, and the more various the places to which they were assigned, the less would the short space of a day suffice for his life on earth after the resurrection, while the determination of the lengthened period which had become necessary to forty days precisely, had its foundation in the part which this number is known to have played in the Jewish, and already in the Christian legend. The people of Israel were forty years in the wilderness. Moses was forty days on Mount Sinai. He and Elias fasted forty days. And Jesus himself, previous to the temptation, remained the same length of time without nourishment in the wilderness. As, then, all these mysterious and intermediate states and periods of transition were determined by the number forty, this number presented itself as especially appropriate for the determination of the mysterious interval between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. As regards the description of the event itself, it might be thought admissible to ascribe the silence of Mark and of Luke in his gospel, concerning the clouds and the angels, purely to the brevity of their narratives. But since Luke, at the close of his gospel, narrates circumstantially enough the conduct of the disciples, how they fell down and worshipped the ascended Jesus, and returned to the city with great joy. So he would doubtless have pointed out the information communicated to them by angels as the immediate source of their joy, had he known anything 
of such a particular at the time when he composed his first writing. Hence, this feature seems rather to have been gradually formed in tradition, in order to render due honor to this last point also in the life of Jesus, and to present a confirmation of the insufficient testimony of men as to his exaltation into heaven by the mouth of two heavenly witnesses. As, according to this, those who knew of an ascension of Jesus had by no means the same idea of its particular circumstances, there must have been, in general, two different modes of conceiving the close of the life of Jesus, some regarding it as a visible ascension, others not so. When Matthew makes Jesus before the tribunal of the high priest predict his exaltation to the right hand of the divine power, chapter 26, verse 64, and after his resurrection declare that now all power is given to him in heaven and earth, chapter 28, verse 18, and nevertheless has nothing of a visible ascension, but on the contrary, puts into the mouth of Jesus the assurance, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Verse 20. It is evident that the latent idea on which his representation is founded is that Jesus, doubtless immediately on his resurrection, ascended visibly to the Father, though at the same time remaining invisibly with his followers, and that out of this concealment he, as often as he found it expedient, revealed himself in Christophanes. The same view is to be discerned in the Apostle Paul, when, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he undistinguishingly places the appearance to himself of the Christ already ascended into heaven, in one series with the earlier Christophanes, and also the author of the fourth gospel, and the rest of the New Testament writers, only presuppose what must necessarily be presupposed according to the messianic passage, Sit thou at my right hand. Psalm 110 verse 1. That Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God, without deciding anything as to the manner of the exaltation, or representing to themselves the ascension as a visible one. The imagination of the primitive Christians must, however, have felt a strong temptation to depict this exaltation as a brilliant spectacle. When it was once concluded that the Messiah Jesus had arrived at so exalted a position, it would appear desirable to gaze after him, as it were, on his way thither. If it was expected, in accordance with the prophecy of Daniel, that his future return from heaven would be a visible descent in the clouds, this would naturally suggest that his departure to heaven should be represented as a visible ascent on a cloud. And when Luke makes the two white-apparelled angels, who joined the disciples after the removal of Jesus, say, This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Acts chapter 1 verse 11. We need only take the converse of this declaration in order to have before us 
the genesis of the conception of the ascension of Jesus. For the mode of conclusion was this. As Jesus will at some future time return from heaven in the clouds, so he must surely have departed thither in the same manner. Compared with these primary incentives, the Old Testament precedents which the ascension of Jesus has in the translation of Enoch, Genesis chapter 5 verse 24, compare Wisdom of Solomon chapter 44 verse 16, chapter 49 verse 16, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5, and especially in the ascension of Elijah, 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 11, compare Wisdom of Solomon chapter 48 verse 9, 1 Maccabees chapter 2 verse 58, together with the Grecian and Roman apotheoses of Hercules and Romulus, recede into the background. Apart from the question whether the latter were known to the second and third evangelists, the statement relative to Enoch is too vague, while the chariot and horses of fire that transported Elijah were not adapted to the milder spirit of Christ. Instead of this, the enveloping cloud and the removal while holding a farewell conversation may appear to have been borrowed from the later representation of the removal of Moses, which, however, in other particulars, has considerable divergencies from that of Jesus. Perhaps, also, one trait in the narrative of the Acts may be explained out of the history of Elijah. When this prophet, before his translation, is entreated by his servant Elisha, that he will bequeath him a double measure of his spirit, Elijah attaches to the concession of this boon the condition, If thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee, but if not, it shall not be so. Whence we might perhaps gather the reason why Luke, Acts chapter 1 verse 9, lay stress on the fact that the disciples beheld Jesus as he went up, namely, because according to the narrative concerning Elijah, this was necessary if the disciples were to receive the spirit of their master. End of section 143